Hey guys, this is Billy Hansen, and welcome to the Lynchburg Neighborhood Podcast. This is a podcast about the Lynchburg area, its people, and its history. I found that the more I get to know my neighbors, really get to know their stories, and the more I understand the history and the backstory and how things work here in Lynchburg, the more connected I feel to this place, and the richer my life becomes. So join me in exploring the Lynchburg neighborhood. Today is November 9th, 2020, and it is great to be alive and living in Lynchburg, Virginia. Up here at Mimosa Hill, you can feel the seasons changing. We have been growing things, vegetables, flowers, for what feels like six months now. Lots of work, preparing the soil, seeding, tending, harvesting, pruning. But now as the weather starts to change, it's time to start ripping things out start preparing for winter, and get ready for a new season. And while we'll miss all the beautiful blooms and uh, the fresh vegetables, uh, one of the great things about winter is it gives you a chance to step back and reflect on uh, the growing season that just was. And it's kind of amazing to look back and see how this kind of unproductive patch of land was transformed into this bountiful garden that was able to produce so many vegetables and beautiful flowers. And it also gives us a chance to look forward to the next season, which we're really excited and hopeful about. And my guest this week is someone whose life is devoted to change and transformation and looking toward the future with hope. I so enjoyed my conversation with Walter Virgil Jr. I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell you about what he does, and then we'll jump into the interview. My name is Walter Edward Virgil, Jr. I'm a Vice President of Business Development over at Extra Solutions Staffing. Um, I get the opportunity to really lead out an awesome group of people there that are really responsible for finding opportunities for people. Um, when I talk about opportunities, I talk about employment um, and even training for uh, amplifying the skill set of individuals so they could be more competitive for other positions. Um, we do uh, head hunting. I know people don't like that term. Um, but outside of that, I'm also um, founder and CEO of Get Fresh and Live which is an awesome initiative that's focused on um, uh, cultivating healthy self-perception within the lives of, of at-risk young men um, through developing educational teaching tools um, that really um, uh, challenges them to uh, see themselves in a healthy light and find the value within themselves so that they can in turn begin to see the value within the process that they have to be subjected to so they can grow into who they're supposed to be. Thanks so much for being here, Walter. Man, it's a blessing to be here, man. I'm excited. So we were talking about what you do Mm -hmm. and the different titles that you have, the different professional titles that you have. And you said that's a complicated question, right? So maybe it's be more um, interesting to think about what are the roles, like what are the categories of things that you think that's what you do. So let me let me set it up for you. I, I have a couple of different titles too, and I serve on different things, and it's always kind of confusing. People are like, what do you do? And every day at the top of my notebook, I write three things. Those are the three roles I see myself as being able to uniquely do. And if something comes across my desk that day that's not that, like I need to like let it pass. Yeah. 
So the things I write down are advisor, storyteller, teacher. Mm. And like, that's not a title, but that's just the ways I think I can uniquely do something. Yeah. And if it's not that, like, yeah. I should probably let it pass, right? Yeah. So if you had to think about yourself in like a couple of categories, you, you understand yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, um, it, it would It would probably like a um, educator, um, speaker, collaborator. Hmm. Um, at, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm always, I'm always, uh, I'm always learning. I'm fascinated by people. Uh, I just recently uh, went through, uh, Gallup, uh, Strengths Finders. I'm with Dr. Owen Cardwell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. he, he was on here. Uh, and he shouted you yeah, out on there. Yeah. How's that feel? No, um, I'm a, I, when, when you begin to talk about people who are historic, yeah. you know, and, and not in, in, in the sense of. They're they're uh they're a landmark to what was, but that these are individuals who are still turning over work. They're walking history, their life and their work is just adding to the archives of what we study from currently, and we're going to continue to study from. Right, and it's just an honor to be in these people's presence, and for him to give me time. You know, it was coffee if we're doing lunch and just pouring into me and listening to what I'm working on and giving me insight and and all of that. And it's like, wow, like I like I'm, I'm just grateful for the time for him to then turn around in the midst of a time where he's being highlighted and ask the question, like, who do you you know, who do you really believe in? Mm. And and listening to the people that he's acknowledging is like, wow, like those individuals are my mentors as well. And then for him to slip my name in there, I was walking uh, down the bluff walk because I stay downtown in the yeah. tobacco loss. Yeah. And so I was walking um, and I was listening to the podcast. And so I was coming up the stairs from the glass house, you know, like those those weird diagonal steps that come up back up to the bluff walk. And I came up to the last to the last zig or zag, <laughs> however right. you want to look at it. right? Yeah. And And I heard him say, but there's a young man here in the city that, you know, just really kind of, you know, impressed with it. Uh, and he said my name and it really hit me in the chest mm -hmm. because um, uh, sometimes as, as you're developing and you're stepping into spaces, you're um, for, for me, I've, I've, I've always kind of questioned certain aspects of, um, Am I really deserving of these opportunities I'm being given? Am I really deserving of these rooms that I'm in? Am I really deserving of this of this influence and this responsibility? You know, or or yeah. or is all this just stuff that I'm making up? You know, yeah. like and 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 as we begin to kind of dig into my story, you begin to get to the bottom of some of um, the 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 things that have transpired in my life that can you know make me feel insecure at times. And it's that constant battle, it's that constant tension, it's that constant pushing that 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 allows my standing to mean so much more to me and the people that are close to me because they're well aware of my insecurities yeah. and what I'm what I'm pushing through. Because from the outside, people look at me and it's like, oh, man, like, yeah, you know, you know, you know, maybe this guy is probably a little too high up on a horse for himself and needs <laughs> to come down. But not really knowing my own personal internal challenges that I'm constantly pushing through just to show up. Yeah. And so I was in one of those spaces where 
I was questioning if, if I'm really the right person for this opportunity that was presenting itself to me at the moment. And then to be able to, that's what the walking was about. Yeah. You know, it was my time of prayer and really trying to kind of clear my mind out. And towards the tail end of it, I pressed play on the Lynchburg Neighborhood podcast. <laughs> right. And, and so I was concluding the end of my walk and the end of his talk and for him to say my name yeah. as it pertained to individuals that he believes is going to play an instrumental role in the future of this city. It was like a divine affirmation mm-hmm. to me. And so it was bigger than just what he had to say. I felt like it was it was God kind of meeting me in that moment yeah. of, of, of feebleness and to really prop me up to realize that, no, um, what he has for me is not just me desiring to self-ascend and to be something awesome for the sake of my own reputation, yeah. but it's actually my responsibility. Mm. And, and I'm not the only person that sees it and believes it. And it was just a real... A real humbling moment, man. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so good. You know, I always picture that my hope isn't that the podcast is for a thousand people, but for but for one, <laughs> that it just, maybe something clicks, right? Something Owen says, or something Kim Payne says, or something Daryl says, something you say today, right? And it goes, oh, there's a light bulb that goes yeah. forward. It hits them right when they needed it. So yeah. that's awesome to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Nah, bro. Nah, it was, it was, it was a very... It was a special moment for a bunch of different reasons, and That's so um, I'm I'm honored, man. I'm honored. I'm grateful. I think it's cool that that, uh, that now I'm over here on Mimosa Hill. That's right. I made it, Mama. <laughs> I made it. I'm right, here. Right where Owen's at. When he's <laughs> um, so I've got a. You're right. I think from afar, the first time I met you, I was like, man, this guy's got it going on. Like, like mm-hmm. everyone's got their struggles. And I can see everyone's got their story, but just yeah. I was like, man. He's just got this way, like mm. it's, it's attractive. Like you're like, man, that's just I love it. Wow. And you're dynamic, and you remind me a lot of like Daryl. Like, okay, you're good at a lot of things. Okay. Almost to a point where, like, for an average guy like me, like it's annoying. <laughs> like you're good at all kinds of stuff, right? Like used to be the star quarterback. Oh like, goodness, gifted speaker, right? And I'm not trying to puff you up, but like yeah, just for yeah, a yeah. I was like, man. And then you dropped a, um, a video. On Instagram, and it was a music video. I'm like, wait, he sings too? Oh goodness! And it was the greatest love. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it looked like you guys were in a loft. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was actually my living room. Yeah, and yeah. you had like the full band, yeah. like you had a team with you. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm watching it, and they're like, it's amazing. Like, it, I'm like, oh, come goodness. on, man! Like, oh, you sound great. The song. Oh, thank did you, you so write, much. Did you write? Yes, sir. Yes, you sir. wrote that song. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm like, the song sounded familiar the first time I heard it. I'm wow. Like, Wait, that's how- every songwriter's dream, you know, uh, because it, you 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 hear a song for the first time when you hear an original music and when you hear it, it's like, hold on, time out. OK, they wrote it, but I feel like I already know it. Like, I feel like I can sing the next the next the next part of it. And and so whenever you like see a songwriter click into something like that, it's like you just stand up and clap your hands. And so for you to say that that, 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 that means a lot to me, man. I thought you were covering a song. I'm like, wow. he's covering something I heard on The Journey or Spirit <laughs> FM. And I'm like, wait, I can't find this song anywhere oh, else. Oh, man. So that was another thing. I was like, man. So my question is, when I see a guy like that, like, one, I'm just appreciative. I'm like, man. Awesome. God's gifted that person with yeah. some amazing things. And I'm glad that we know each other and we're friends and amen. we're going to be in the same city building together. Yeah, one, that's the first thought. Yeah. The second is... What what can I learn? What can I glean from him? 
So I'm thinking particularly of stories. So you're a speaker and you are a teacher and you're a minister yes. in your church. Yes, 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 yes. And you're a great storyteller. I've noticed that. Okay. You're a very good storyteller. And it looks like it's coming naturally. Like these stories, like they're just coming out. Like you just remembered it. <laughs> but do you have a process for gathering and collecting and turning everything in your life into stories and material? Is there a process that, that you do to, to I, bring those together? Or do they just come? I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, I wish there was a process. Because it would take a lot of the pressure and the anxiety off of specific moments. <laughs> um, but but uh, um, Bishop Younger, first of all, like it's 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 gonna take a whole a whole book for me to write about just the impact that Bishop Younger has made into my personal life mm. um, and me understanding um, the power in my life experiences and if I could ever grow to the stature where I can tell the truth about what I've experienced that the power is in that level of honesty and transparency within itself mm. and that the best stories are the truth. Yeah. The best stories are accounts of what really happened. Yeah. Um, that there's no better setup. There's no better crescendo. There's no better, you know, outcome than like what, what, what really happened. If we're talking about just kind of like a full scale scenario as to how things started, where you were, what were you feeling, what was what were your obstacles, right? But the best stories are those that the audience can begin to see the 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 the, the transformation, the, the the dark dark turning into the brightest light. Yeah. And so his whole thing was, and even when people testify in church, because from time to time we get more so old school, we get people an opportunity to be able to testify about you know, what God has done in their life. And he's clear, like, all right, listen, don't don't spend all your time testifying, talking about the darkness, about what was wrong. I want to hear where the victory is. Yeah. Where's the victory in the story? Yeah. You know, and and thing is I'm an 80s baby, so I'm a Rocky kid. Yeah. You know? And and that was the beauty of Rocky. You got a chance to see the darkness, you know, the despair. You know the, the 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 impossible nature of of of, of victory, the impossible uh, 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 dynamic of victory being able to come into his situation, but seeing him making his mind up that he was just gonna push, you know, against whatever obstacles that was there. He wasn't gonna try to sidestep it, even though he would try to find a way around it, but be reminded by someone in his life that that's not who he is, that he has to grab it where it is and just push as hard as he can mm. with what he has control over. Mm. And eventually that conditions, that conditions him into, in, 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 into this, into this, in, into this stature that he didn't have before this confidence. <laughs> he didn't have before this grit and this determination that he didn't have before. And all it takes is for him to get a glimpse of what he's been through to be able to power him up in the midst of a moment where he's considering going down and it's like the light goes off and he's like knocking out Ivan Drago, right? Yeah. Knocking out Apollo Creed. And as a child, I internalized that. I internalized the story of Rudy Rudiger. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. Like has no business being on that field, but he's relentless. He's tenacious. He's being denied opportunity, but he's still showing up. And before you know it, 
a window opens up for him at the very last game of, of his very last season, yeah. the very last opportunity for him to be able to have a chance just to step on the field. But when he steps on the field, it's not just him out there for just one play that goes completely away from him. He has an opportunity to actually make the play. And as a child, I internalized that. I, there was something in me that believed that that was possible. And I always perceived myself to be that underdog. And, and in being able to just em, em, embrace those accounts and remember how it happened, remember how low I felt, remember how down I was, remember the complexities of the adversity that I was internalizing, and then begin to talk about how it switched. Where did it switch? What happened that 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 led you into this place of illumination now? Mm-hmm. And and whenever whenever I'm internalizing a story, I'm observing a story. I'm always I'm fascinated with transformation. Mm-hmm. Whether it be weight loss, whether it be mm-hmm. you know whatever it is, like paying attention to that tension in the middle where the meter switched from one polar end to the other. Yeah. But the middle, where when when it came, when when the story came to the equator, when when you know when 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 the story came to that point, what got it to that point, and what pushed it over over the edge where it came into the opposite end of the spectrum? That's the fascination, yeah. you know, because the reality is I'm constantly living in the tension of that breaking point, and and so my responsibility is to encourage people to that point. And over that point, into the illumination, into the light of life. So you talked about your story. Mm-hmm. And you as a little kid internalizing those stories. So I want to I show you a picture of me. All right. Is that all right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So every time, I, the first few times I saw you, you were in a three-piece suit, right? And you, that's your uniform. That's what you yeah, say. And I'm yeah. like, he always looks so good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is me with my parents, age one, oh. at the Wards Road Kmart. One time a year, we go to Olin Mills in the Kmart. Okay. And we get a picture, and I would be in a bow tie and a little suit. Let's go. That's the one time of the year for my entire childhood, I wasn't wearing like a t-shirt and shorts, right? Yeah. So this is me. So as I was getting ready for this... I know my experience with dressing nice as a kid was once a year. But you dress so nice now. I was like, maybe Walter was dressed nice as a kid. Tell me about young Walter's fashion. Little Walter. Um, my, my, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm Walter Virgil Jr. And I have to say that everywhere I go. Because uh, because if not, I feel like my dad will pop out the ceiling somewhere <laughs> and lay me out and embarrass me in front of everybody. Um, but um, my, my 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 father my father actually did some modeling back in the seventies. Um, really? Always just a really clean dresser. Always you know um, was really on top of grooming. That was really huge growing up. Seeing my dad trimming his mustache, yeah. you know, um, shaving. Just taking really good care of himself, you know. We would go to the barber shop, you know, a certain amount of times a month. Make sure that you presented yourself well. Um, my my grandfather is really where it comes from. Um, my, my my grandfather, uh, the late great Bishop R. T. Virgil, we affectionately call him Popo, um, uh, from Columbia, Mississippi. 
even the story of my family, how they migrated, they were part of the the, uh, the, the part of the Great Migration within the 50s, yeah. um, moved from Columbia, Mississippi to New Brunswick, New Jersey. My dad was the first um, the first child born in New Jersey. He was actually number four. And then after him, there were uh, nine more children wow. uh, that were born. So there was 13 in, in all. Um, but my grandfather, he, he owned a dry cleaning business yeah. and he was a preacher. And so, like, you know, uh, my, my dad tells stories of how he would, like, you know, have everybody throw all their dry cleaning in a bag and he would take it and, and literally press out whatever they brought. And sometimes they would drop their underwear in there <laughs> and their underwear would come back starched and pressed. <laughs> and so and, and, and so I think that's really like the genesis of like where where fashion has always been a, a part of our lives, because it started with Popo, my, my grandfather, Bishop Virgil. Uh, he always just had all different types of suits, you know, um, uh, always had all different types of shoes polished up. And, and, and the kids picked it up. Primarily, my dad really picked it up and, uh, and was just always the type of guy, really clean cut. Mm. Um, and then, and then my, my cousin uh, was, was a professional model. I'm talking about like billboards and Times Square. We would go on field trips and we'd be in Times Square. And I'm like, yo, that's my cousin right up there. They're like, yeah, right. You know, I'm like, no, that's that's my cousin up there. Of course, you know, he he did he did all types of fashion, but this time it was it was it was like an underwear ad. So oh, yeah. he's chiseled up there with a pair of briefs on, you know. And uh and they didn't believe me until I got him to come to school one day. You know, it's like I told you, you know, my my, my cousin, uh, Malice Brunel Harrison. Um, he was the one that introduced me to the world of fashion when I was about like 15, 16 years old. He got me on the runway and, into the fashion industry in New York and New Jersey and Philadelphia. And um, and that's what really kind of broke me into what, what what fashion looks like from a couture level, from an executive men's level to, to a casual urban wear level. And uh, I always gravitated towards executive men's clothing. Wow. So you get it honest. You didn't just see some magazines. No, and no, no, like no, that. no. This was just like oh. the men you most respected. Oh my goodness! This is what we yeah. do. This yeah. is how we yeah. present. And and, yeah. and and also on the flip side, um, as well, uh, my 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 stepfather, um, uh, Stanley Crowder, he was he he's the one that really kind of curved me more towards executive menswear because he was uh, he was vice president of of student affairs at Mega Rivers uh, at Mega Rivers Community College. Yeah. In, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Wow. And so growing up from the age of like seven to 18, I, I, I remember him waking up every morning, um, suit and tie, making his way off to work, you know, yeah. helping him in, you know, the night before polish his shoes, yeah. you know, and, and, and just his closet full of, you know, all of these beautiful navy blue, gray, you know, suits and shirts and ties and making runs to the cleaners with them and, you know, all his, all the cufflinks and, you know, the watches and, you know, the, 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 the shoe trees and, you know, and, and that's, that was like, that really, you know, fortified the fact that, nah, man, every day I go to work, I want to have a job where I have to put on a suit, a shirt and a tie. I want to be an administrator. And so that's what really sealed it to where I thought it was cool that his uniform was a shirt, a tie, and a suit. Yeah. You know, and he was a boss. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so that's what really like 
clicked it all the way in and I was just destined to be something along those lines. So we were talking before we got on about certain things that spark nostalgia in a really heavy way. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, because clothing, are there any items of clothing that you have when you put them on certain items that are like, man, that just brings back a flood of like, well, well, um, there's, there's, there's not necessarily a specific item that, that clicks me in, um, as far as like nostalgia, I think um, for for me when 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 I hit the top when when I when I button the top button of my collar and I actually zip my tie up and in, it's the action. It's a mentality. It's a it's 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 a whole nother mental space I'm clicking into. Yeah. You know, um, being able to realize that this is time to live up to every expectation. This is the time to perform. This is the time to make things happen. What do we have to do? What do we? And and I'm in that. It's it's like it's like I almost become like this shark. It's like we're about to make this thing happen. Yeah. You know, I I, I you know I'm I, I button my vest up. You know, and and naturally the vest like pulls you in and it makes you feel like you're putting on armor. And for me, a big thing when I was a football player, when you put on your pads and you click them in, it it literally props up your your torso and and, and you feel that armor. But for me, when I click on that vest and when I put on that coat, like like it it becomes like an armor. And it's like, nah, we're about to get something done. Yeah. And so and so for me, like all of that, like that, it's, it's that buckling up. It's that clicking in. It's that clicking in your chin strap. It's that buckling up your shoulder pads because it's about to go down. Yeah. You know? And so, um, so, so, so that's why for me, me dressing up to that degree, like there's a whole mentality that's, that's connected with it to where for me, it's like go time. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you've got this big family, right? Mm -hmm. At least a dozen uncles and aunts on one side and probably more. On, and on my mother's side, she was she was one of ten. Yeah. So I, I grew. So um, my mom, my mom's from Vega Baja, Puerto Rico, okay. northwest corner of the island. Um, really beautiful spot. They're they're country people. Um, not that far from the water. Um, uh, when my mom was about like twelve years old in in the seventies, she uh, her her father decided that they wanted to uproot the family and move them to a place called New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, you know, just for better opportunities. But one of my aunts, she was experiencing like extreme complications due to allergies. Mm. And so the doctor said, well, actually, if if you guys move to a place that was a little more metropolitan, like a New Jersey, a lot of these, you know, challenges she really wouldn't have. Mm. And so they did and she got better. Mm. And so um, uh, she's one of 10 and uh, uh, essentially, I ended up having about almost growing up with like 30 first cousins yeah. just on her side and about 45 first cousins from my dad's side. So growing up, I ain't need friends. Right. I had cousins. Yeah. You know, we fought, we raced, we played, we, you know, um, and so just 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 a really interesting um, upbringing with both of those sides of the family. When we talk about the food, we talk about the culture, we talk mm-hmm. about the I, I, I just really been blessed. So help me picture it. You're New Brunswick, New Jersey. Yeah. You've got are a lot of your family living in that same neighborhood, same area. 
same city? Back then when I was a child, we, we were all, for the most part, well within like a 20-minute radius of each other. Um, but a lot of times the hub for both sides of the family were our grandparents' house. Okay. You when know? did you go there? Um, uh, well, well, whenever we, we played sick from school... <laughs> My mother, we, my my mother's mother, you know, my my my, my abuela Ezequiela Santiago, um, she she was the house where all of her where, where where all of her where all of her children would would convene at. So if if you needed to drop the kids off somewhere, you know, you're going to abuela's house. And so we would, because whenever I would play sick, or really was sick, my sister would do the same deal. And so it was like a package deal. So we'll end up going to our grandma's house. So she would call and let her know that we were coming. And so she would drive up, let us out. You know, we open up the door. And there would be certain times we would open up the door and see that we had some of our other cousins that pulled the very same deal. You know, and so we look at each other like, oh, this is about to be the most awesome time in the world. And we knew that our grandmother, she went up to her room and prayed every day from like 10 o'clock to like 11, 1130. So we knew we were about to, the moment she went up there and went in that door, we were leaving the house. We were going on adventures. We were doing all types of crazy stuff. And so, um, yeah, grow, growing up was really was really cool. But then outside of that, like on a weekend, we all went over to Momo and Popo's house, um, my, my paternal grandparents' house. And um, we would, um, we, the, first of all, my dad's side of the family, for the most part, all all American athletes, mm. you know, all state and and basketball, track, football. So everybody's fast. Everybody's super athletic. Yeah. So all of my cousins are super fast, super athletic. And so we just went at it. Everything was competitive. Right. Everything was relentless. Everything was keeping record on the last time somebody beat somebody and talking <laughs> junk. And we could settle this right now, whether that we fighting or we running or we doing something. <laughs> and so it was that type of energy over there, you know. Yeah. And um and and that's where I got my competitive edge from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just being surrounded by cousins in various age groups that, you know, were faster, stronger. Yeah. You know. So it was it was it was just it was just a really 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 great experience mm-hmm. growing up. Mm. So, it sounds like both sides of your family, your mom and your dad, came to New Brunswick, New Jersey for something better. Yeah. Right? Like, different reasons, different <laughs> yeah. places, yeah. but for something better. Looking back at it, did they find that there in New Jersey? Do you think they found that? Was New Jersey, was it better? Like, what's the family sort of lore history on that? Well, I, they, and that's, Billy, that's the first time somebody and he asked me, ever asked me that question. Um... I think for what they were initially looking for, yeah. Um, I think it was an opportunity for exposure um, to to more. Um, You know, uh, unfortunately, more didn't always look productive. Mm. More didn't always look promising. You know, sometimes being exposed to more looked like, you know, um, individuals struggling with uh, drug and alcohol addiction. Mm. You know, um, for for others, it 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 looked like them finding, um, you know, careers. You know, working for local government, working in the city as workers. You know, um, my my mom's side of family, uh, her brothers all joined uh, the water department. You know, um, master plumbers, carpenters, mm. that type of deal. You know, being able to experience a life they never would have been able to experience on the island. Yeah. You know. Um, my, my my dad's side of the family, a lot of them 
um, struggled with uh, with with addiction, mm. you know, um, and so more for them um, looked like an, an an endless possibility of getting into various different things that really didn't look like career, you know, um, uh, but. But but even for the next generation, I have you know cousins now that have been able to aspire. They're doing great things professionally. They're doing great things academically. Maybe things they wouldn't have experienced had not been for us moving to New Brunswick. You know, I, I've been blessed to um, to experience a lot and to grow. And I'm a byproduct of of my grandfather making that faith step. Yeah. You know, and so um, I I think we're still. I think we're still living out the answer to that question. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting. Wow, that's I'm, that's something I'm gonna be thinking about later on. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's like a big question. Like, yeah. you can't go redo it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, there's not like, oh, let's just replay this. And the answer is never. Like, you can never see the full picture. But 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 this point. is but this is what it speaks to me. It speaks to me. Um. Uh. That that there's that that there's an inherent um, ability to make faith moves. Mm. That that that's a part of my makeup, if I choose to acknowledge it or not. That that the capacity for that type of faith, yeah. you know, um, because it mirrors the same faith of of Abraham, yeah. right? Um, scriptures tell us. That that uh, that Abraham hears from God, and God tells Abraham, "Listen, I'm calling you to leave your kindred, to leave the place that you've known your whole life, yeah. and I'm calling you to a place you've never been to before, because I'm going to make you a people group. I'm going to establish a nation out of you." In a place that I've never shown you before, but I'm going to need you to trust me like no man has ever trusted me before. Mm. And through his obedience, we, of course, see that the, that, that, that the nation of, of, of Israel comes forward. And, and it's through this that we have so much now. Yeah. But all of that is a byproduct of one man yeah. taking a faith step to uproot his family in faith. And establishing them in a place where they had no connections and no ties, but believing that God was going to provide and sustain them. And he did. And so there's generations of people that are now um, thriving as a result of decisions made by their forefathers. Yeah. And so knowing that that I've, 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 I've clicked into that very same track of, of faith that I have that within me as a result of my patriarchs, yeah. you know, making those types of moves. And so um, that even speaks to my journey that I'm going to constantly be faced with those opportunities and make those faith steps. And if I do that, that it's a much bigger residual impact that's being made than just my own immediate, you know, uh, my own immediate family, but it's, it's those decisions are speaking to generations Mm. And so it's a constant reminder for me, yeah. you know, that, that that's that that's who I am, you know. Yeah. So it, it sounds like one of the things you take from your grandparents is this ability to take these big steps in faith, hmm. right? That you that are scary, hmm. that have uncertain outcomes, hmm. 
but they believe that's the thing to do. What else did you learn from your your grandparents? What um, do you take with you today? Um, there was just a certain level of of consistency that was the lifeline for the rest of our family. Mm. You know, um, a certain level of consistency and stability and faith. Yeah. You know, you got when you you think about it, you have. You know, on both sides, you, you got 10, you got 13 kids. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you better be anchored in some form of faith. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, but, but their, their very households served as a safe haven, served as a refuge. You know, somebody got into some trouble. You know that there's always room for you at Momo and Popo's house. There's always room for you at Abuela's house. Mm. You know, there's always an opportunity to, to regroup start again and go back out and try to figure it out, you know? Um, and uh, a, a place where, where there was always wise counsel, wise godly counsel, if you wanted to hear it or not. Right. You know? It's the price of admission. Come in the house. You got to hear it. <laughs> no, no, no. Because you hear it. If you hear it, you're going to hear this. Yeah. You know? And it's out of love, even though it's aggressive. <laughs> Even though it may make you feel like it's totally demeaning you and breaking you down and showing you how stupid you are, but it's but it's not because there's more in you, you know. And it's and it's time for that to live. It's time for you to start being responsible. It's time for you to start seeing that there's so many more people that are pay, that are relying on you, yeah. and and just um, they they were pillars. They were pillars to us, you know. It they 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 created home. For all of us and so now that all of them are passed away there's there's such a big void yeah. in our family and now we're learning how to create that same sense of community without having that hub that tangible hub that symbolized so much to us mm. you know and so um and so now that's 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 my desire if i know it or not that's what 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 I believe I'm being graced to do to create to create home to create hubs that that make people feel welcome make them feel like they have a safe space a refuge yeah. a place in which they can go where they can regroup yeah and get it together not to stay forever yeah. but to go back out yeah. and so um in my own way I've internalized that into into my life's mission Okay, so we got the big family, the big yeah. family that's spread yeah. out. Tell me about um, the inside your house in, in New Jersey. You have siblings. Yeah, I got. I have a. Uh, I have a. I have a younger sister. Um, we're eighteen months apart. When we grew up, my mom used to dress us alike, so people thought we were twins. <laughs> and so, and so there were some gender neutral colors, or maybe some colors that weren't so gender neutral. Um, and, and I think that, that my that, that my openness to fashion kind of allowed me to embrace it. Like, hey, I can wear I can wear pink and purple. Listen, I'm embracing this. I can you pull know, that off. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so we grew up super close. Um, of course, me and my sister, we you know since we're so close in age, always kind of going at it. But when it was all said and done, I was her protector. Yeah. And at that time, she was really shy, um, which she's totally not now. Um, but I was, I was kind of her, her spokesperson, mm. you know, like she just really wasn't like, she would like run up under my dad type. But whenever we were like on the school bus, you know, I'm in the back of the bus, you know, cause we with the cool kids, yeah. 
you know, but she was quiet with a backpack. And so she sat and we, we shared the same seat. So she was in the inside and I was in the outside, you know, running my mouth, laughing with everybody else, you know, and that was the dynamic, you know, um, up until we got in high school and, you know, she started blossoming to her, into her womanhood and got her eyebrows arched and you couldn't tell her nothing after that, brother. <laughs> I know she's going to listen to this and be so upset. Uh, but, um, but no, um, um, I, I, I grew up with, um, I grew up with, uh, with, with, with a stepbrother. Uh, my parents split when I was about like two years old, they were married and, um, my dad was, you know, he was struggling with, with, with drug addiction and, you know, and, and there were some challenges they had in their marriage and, and so they split. You know, for a little bit, I lived in um, lived in my my abuela's house. Yeah. Um, you know, in Wright Place, which is uh, Section Eight housing development in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Mm. Um, had a lot of great moments over there. Yeah. Got into a lot of trouble. Um, but um, but yeah, but uh, my mom connected with uh, my stepdad, Stanley Crowder. Yeah. Um, awesome man. Uh, took us out of there. Um, bought us a house. We all begun to kind of blend our families together. He had two sons. Um, one was about 17 years older than me, so he was already in college. Mm. Um, and he had another son, um, um, Dennis Shea Ledbetter, that was about three years older than me. Um, he moved in with us. Yeah. And essentially, he was a person that like taught me how to be cool, how to talk to girls, yeah. you know, taught me how to fight, you know, yeah. primarily through the method of just beating me up. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> You'll eventually figure it out. <laughs> uh, and so it was just a really interesting. It was a really interesting dynamic, you know. Even with with his life, um, when he was when I was twelve, he was um, like fourteen, fifteen. At that time, uh, he he got initiated into the Bloods locally in our neighborhood, um, and the only way that he could go outside was if he brought me with him. And so uh, this was, I think, like the summer of '96. Yeah. You know the, uh, and I mean the Yankees. The, the Yankees would win the World Series that fall. Yeah. <laughs> Had to throw that in there. So if anybody else here listening, yes, the Yankees up in here. But um, you don't see the Orioles here, right? Man, I don't even. Right? I don't even acknowledge that. <laughs> I thought that was toilet paper for a minute, even though it's the size of a blanket. Um, but uh, but now um, I, I started. I started getting exposed to. Um, that level of, of activity, but really what I observed was the camaraderie they had amongst themselves. Um, I, I know there's, and I'm in no way, shape or form glorifying gang life or activity, but I think it's something to understand it. Yeah. Um, and the majority of these young men, they didn't have father figures in their life. They were disappointed by the male representation that, that was in their life. And they develop their own commitment to each other to protect each other, mm. and um, and and they openly loved each other, mm. you know. And um, you know, there there of course there were moments where there was some violence and some fighting and some crazy stuff, um, but the majority of time it was it was it was them, you know, just spending time with each other, just friends committed to protecting themselves in the neighborhood from anybody else from the outside. But as time went on, the activity really began to amplify. Mm. And I desired to be associated and affiliated. And it was at that time that my brother really stepped in and says, nah, this ain't you. Mm. Nah, you're going to go to school. You know, nah, I mean, you're going to get a scholarship. Yeah. You're going to go to the league. You know, that's, that's your track. This ain't it for you. Yeah. You know, and um, um, unfortunately, when I was away in college, uh, I was 20. 
Um, then he was uh, 22. Um, this was this was April of 2005. Um, he uh, he was found murdered. Mm. Um, I know I totally just like shifted the gear, um, but uh, yeah, now nah, he he decided that he no longer wanted to be a part of the gang life. And you know he he went to school, got his certification to be an under underwater welder, mm-hmm. and was really just trying to get legit because he saw there was real no loyalty in it. Yeah. But at that time, you know, um, his wanting to pull out was perceived as a threat. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, he became a sixteen-year-old boy's initiation in Trenton, New Jersey, about two three blocks away from the train station, in in the alley, um, and uh, and that really shifted the trajectory of my young life yeah. you know and and so um but yeah but as far as like the you know that's that's so uh my my mom my stepdad no longer together my mother remarried mm-hmm. um she's retired living in florida yeah. had a, got a beautiful house five minutes from from the beach and she spends the majority of her her day um either doing payroll for for my sister or just in the garden or laying out getting some sun man yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i know i just kind of just like took us on a trip that's all right. uh, yeah. That's alright, man. I'm I'm just I'm just picturing you like as a college kid, like it's a big wound, right? Like, it's a big thing to process. Yeah, it it was it was it was something that um uh because because mind you, um he was murdered at the end of April, um, funeralized in the beginning of, of May when I came back, all of his uh all of the local bloods in the area you know, they, they convened and I, I remember one occasion where um I was I was handed I was handed his I was handed his gun. Mm. And they were like, We we think we know who did it. Yeah. Like we about to ride out, like, what's up? Yeah. And I remember in that moment, like, just being like just really emotional and a bunch of different things all at the same time. And I was like I was like, Man, listen, if y'all wanna help, let the police do their job, bruh. Like we want to know who did it. We want to like you feel what I'm saying. Like we we want this. We want we want this justice to be served, bro. Like if you want to help us, bro, back up, man. Like let these people do their job. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, and I remember that was just a real, that was just a real heavy time. You know, um, shortly after they they found the people and they were you know they were they were holding them and preparing for trial. And I remember that. That I told my my school administrators like I can't go back I can't go back to New Jersey this summer, yeah. like because there's just so much going on, yeah. and I like I couldn't even process. So they they made provisions for me to be able to stay in my dorm room for the rest of the summer, mm. you know, and allowed me to work an internship with the um, NYSP program, which is like a, a a program for high school kids locally, and and so I was I was I was in my dorm room on an empty campus for the summer of 2005 and I would just run and just cry and mm. and just really like trying to process through that trauma yeah. you know and um unfortunately I didn't I didn't process it to I didn't process it well yeah. and um and I begun a downward spiral into like these deep places of depression mm. you know um and and the theme of my life at that time was I'm good. Yeah. I'm good, you know. I yeah, you know, how are you doing? You all right? You need to No, no, no I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And 
and and and begin to slip into drug use. Mm. You know, um, while starting quarterback of the school and all that. You know, I'm pledging a frat the same time, just trying to suppress, trying to live on top of it. You know, not looking to really head back home, not really looking to engage with my family, not looking, just trying to go forward, go forward. And before you knew it, I ended up, you know, becoming real hostile, got into an altercation. Um, before you know, long story short, I was slamming some guy and I snapped my knee and now my, my whole football career is down the tubes because I completely tore my AC on my MC on my meniscus. And now I'm at MCV after full um, knee reconstructive surgery with my leg up and a morphine drip in my hip and I can't feel my foot. Mm. And just devastated because the only real identity I had at that time was me being the man on the football field. And that's what allowed me, gave me influence in the other areas in which I did, or so I thought. And so the question was, who am I going to be now? Yeah. And, um, and that was a long journey with the, with the, with, with, with the pharmaceutical drugs, with, you know, with, with, with getting high off of, you know, marijuana and overindulging and, and just all this other attention that was around me. I, I just, I completely, um, lost sight, lost track of my life, my academic career, mm. and um, really begun to deal with like dark emotions of, of like suicide and things like that. Mm. And it was and it was in that time that I got connected um, to, to to Bishop Younger and the Ram Church International here in Lynchburg. Yeah, you know, I'm in Lawrenceville. That's 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 yeah. Brunswick County. That's between Emporia and South Hill, right off of Blackstone. Yeah. You know, and um, we we got a transfer student from Liberty University. Um, he was he was a running back, yeah. and um, and at that time I went through my rehab and I'm back on the football field, not what I used to be, but I'm playing with a different mentality, and so we're we're being really successful. But I knew I wasn't gonna uh, be playing professional ball anymore, yeah. um, and he was really on fire. Uh, for God and having Bible studies. I'm like, who's this guy trying to come out here and Bible studies? At this time, I'm the big frat guy. I'm SJ president. You know, we're throwing parties and all that. And now he's having Bible studies and people starting to go to these Bible studies. I'm like, what? And so we started connecting. And it was through that connection that that I gave my life to the Lord. Mm. And I got connected to Bishop Younger in the Ram Church. And I started visiting Lynchburg. Yeah. And that's when I realized, like, wow, uh, this place is going to play an instrumental role in me discovering who I am. Mm. So you met Bishop Younger almost at the low point. Oh, yeah. Like all oh, the yeah. different things in your story, right? Different ups and downs. Uh, but this sounds like your identity's gone. Brother, you had loss. Yeah. You don't know who you are. And that's when you meet. Hmm. And, and it was in, because uh, we invited him, because we started um, an FCA uh, at St. Paul's College, and we started, you know, inviting the different students to come out. And um, my buddy Dante Chestnut, he's he's the running back from Liberty that transferred. Yeah. He was like, "Man, we need to invite my pastor." I'm like, "Oh goodness, everybody thinks their pastor's the greatest pastor in the world." <laughs> Let's set it up. I'm like, cool. At the time, we were averaging like 25 students, yeah. you know, um, but we really pushed it out on the campus, and 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 we outgrew the place that we were in, and so we had to get clearance to go into our auditorium. So it was my job to host the guest speaker 
and he was bringing some some of his church members with him. So out of nowhere, like two big white 15 passenger vans pull up, boom, and they're jam packed full of people. You know, and so door opens up. I see this gentleman. I'm like, excuse me, can you let me know where I can find Pastor Shante? Because I need to let her know where we're going to be going. And he looked at me and smiled and says, no, 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 I'm Pastor Shante. I was like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Uh, but, you know, but me being myself, I just, you know, oh, OK. All right. Well, um, listen, my name is Walter Virgil. Um, I'm here to bring you in and, you know, change the plans. We're no longer going to be over there. We're going to be over here. And um, and he begun to minister um, just just another level of of healing mm. and perspective that my life needed. And it was in that moment that I realized that I'm hearing the voice of the person that God is sending into my life to help me figure things out. Mm. Instantaneously. Mm. I knew it. Like, no, life for me is connected to the word and the revelation that God has given this man. Mm. Because I was fighting. I was fighting to find someone. I always had people that were impressed by me. And since they were impressed by me, they, 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 weren't, they weren't equipped to really help me journey through my challenges. Because they were so focused on trying to cultivate this relationship that they weren't willing to be confrontational. And I'm a quarterback. I need aggressive coaching. I'm accustomed to sitting down, looking at the game footage, and somebody clearly drawing a circle around my screw up. Like, no, 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 bring that back. No, look at that. Look at that. What's wrong with What's wrong with the first step? I'm I'm used to that, and I project that. I I receive that to be love. I receive that as you wanting me to get better. But now, when it comes to like mentors in my life, everybody was patty kicking me when I was having real problems. Mm-hmm. And this was somebody that was able to see the dilemma and didn't tap dance around it, but just shot the straight truth at me. And and that's how our relationship began. I started commuting to Lynchburg, um, which is about like a two, two, two and a half hour drive, about like like two hours. And um, I came amongst the people and I realized like, these are my people. Now, I don't know how we're going to work this out, but... Because at the time, I, my license was suspended because I had a souped-up Mustang. Got in so much trouble with it. So between the bishop and members of the church, they would come down on the weekends, pick me up to take me to church to bring me back to school on time uh, for my class. They did this for about a year. Yeah. And so so I knew like when, when everything was done over at St. Paul's, I was going to, you know, be moving out there. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah. Do you think do you think meeting Bishop Younger was an answer to someone's prayer prayed earlier? Uh wow. Um my grandfather uh was an active pastor my whole life until the age of ninety-three. Mm-hmm. Um but by the time I finally had an interest in ministry. He was already mute um, due to his health conditions. Like, he was just getting old, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know? And he was no longer preaching or ministering. And so, for that reason, I always, I kind of like begun to internalize like a regret, like, 
all those Sundays, all those Wednesdays for all those years of my life that he preached and he taught and I and I was never really able to sit under his teaching and really understand his his theological perspective when it came to certain things. Never got a chance to hear his teaching as it pertained to soteriology and eschatology and 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 the thing is in and the and 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 it's in the understand his Christological perspective and and all of this and I felt like I missed it. I missed the opportunity to be able to receive from my grandfather, mm-hmm. you know, and I was living in that regret. Like now my life is, I'm finally living, you know, for the Lord. I'm in ministry. And and these are times where I'm wanting to have these conversations, you know, because none of his kids turn out to be preachers. Right. None of his grandkids turn out to be preachers, but I'm the one, yeah. you know, and I, I want to have this engagement, but I felt like I missed it. My relationship with Bishop Younger was it it gave me an opportunity to receive the training, to receive the impartation that I thought I missed out on. Mm. And so to begin to put into words how how special that was for me, um <laughs> it's it's impossible. Mm. So Young Walter in New yeah. Brunswick. Yeah. Could he picture, like he had his dreams mm-hmm. of what he'd be doing in his 30s. Yeah. Could he picture what you're doing right now? No. Like what would he, th- like he'd be like. No, no, no. For, for, um, I knew that at that time and the way I was growing, um, I was going to be a, a world-class talent mm-hmm. athletically. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I knew it. I knew I was going to be a professional athlete. Um, you know, I knew I had to learn how to um, effectively deal with people. You know, and and just always and just really, you know, just just I was blessed with a bright personality. You know, and I can make friends and and learning how to communicate and you know because I thought like being able to you know press conferences and doing different endorsement deals and me having personality and you know and 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 me being photogenic these are all packages of being this world class talent and so I embraced that you know and so I thought that's where I would be you know I in no way shape or form did I that I see that I was going to be an educator that I was going to be an adjunct instructor that I was going to be training principals and superintendents and you know, and that I would be, you know, um, in school systems teaching, that I'd be in jails teaching, that I'd be, you know, doing all that I get an opportunity to be able to do. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't see that because I thought that was above my my pay grade. I thought that was above my potential hmm. because I wasn't a strong student. You know, I was I was I was evaluated by my local child study team, had IEPs. I was evaluated to have learning deficiencies. I was medicated on Ritalin and Wellbutrin and struggled with, 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 with the darkness and the depressions that are connected to that and me feeling like I was remedial, yeah. you know, and I had learning challenges. And so I, I didn't, I didn't see myself as an intellect, mm. you know, I figured like the only way I'm going to be able to make it is if I'm really good. My mother told me when I started high school, she was like, listen, if you want to go to college, you better be good on the football field. Cause I don't have the money to pay for you to go to school. Mm. And so um, I knew I was going to be successful. I knew I was going to be a somebody, mm-hmm. that I had some gifts, 
you know, that could be used that people would want to be connected to. I knew that my life was going to be about connecting with people, but I thought it was going to be more so through the lane of athletics. I, in no way, shape or form that I think that there was going to be any type of intellectual or academic venture in what would, um, become of myself. Yeah. So you mentioned jails. And I remember one of the ways I used to see you would go live on Instagram. Yeah. On the way in to Amherst County Jails and the way out. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm fascinated by this. Like, I love what you're doing. I love that you're going in there and being a positive voice. What um, what was your approach when you went in the jail? Like, because um, they've heard a lot of speakers, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got a yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, Here's yeah, this yeah. plan. Like, what yeah. was your approach to really make a dent? Um, my, 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 my initial come out was, listen, I've never been locked up before. Yeah. I've been in some stupid stuff that should have got me locked up. I've been in some stupid stuff that some of y'all in here for. Yeah. I'm not coming at you from, from that rah-rah angle. The reality is, is, um, I'm your son. I'm your nephew. I'm your cousin. I'm, I'm a young man. I'm, I'm the same young man that's on the outside waiting for you to come out because I need you to be a part of my healthy development. Mm. Mm. Growing up, my dad and my uncles were constantly being locked up. The only time I really saw them sober mm. was when I visited them in jail. Mm. And while they were in there, I was out I was out in in my neighborhood trying to figure out who I was going to be. And the only voices I had were individuals that were in the same age bracket as myself. Yeah. Now, I had my stepdad who was phenomenal. He was an advocate for me and all that. But but when you're dealing with blended families sometimes and you have stepfathers, they have all the best intentions in the world. But there's something in that child that doesn't want that dad. Yeah. yeah. You know, he wants to hear the voice of 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 his father, of the man that's supposed to be in position and responsible for him. And so I was dealing with that. Now, I was suppressing the voice of my stepfather, but the voices I were receiving were that of those who were not that far away from me in age that really had no real wisdom. Mm. So we were literally the blind leading the blind. And so my hope was for the men that I wanted to cleave to to come out and finally live healthy and help me figure out this life. And so when I was in there, I was like, bro, I'm that kid. And so as I'm in here, I'm, 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 I'm here ready to labor with you to, to, to give you the strategy necessary so that you can come out and be that man that that boy needs you to be. Mm -hmm. Somebody's depending on you. Yeah. Let's go on this journey yeah. of discovering the value of what you have to give because there's people that are depending on it. Mm -hmm. Let's work. And, and it was that that they could respect. Because yeah. I wasn't shooting from trying to, you know, push off this testosterone and trying to... Because people feel really intimidated when they go in jails. And when you get locked up in that room, it's, it's a room probably the size of probably a... A... A 60, a 60 by, by 30 like a rectangle and it's all cinder block, no windows and they close the door and you're in there by yourself and a camera in the corner. 
with anywhere from about um, 10 to 15 inmates at the at one time and they got on orange suits. That can be intimidating. And, and if you're not smart, you can feel that you have to buck up and give this presentation as repellent for anybody thinking that they can take you. Right. All wrong. Mm. I mean, no. I'm your son. Mm. I'm your cousin. I'm your nephew. I'm your brother. We need to figure out what coming home and staying home looks like. Because mm. we need you. Yeah. So good. How was the, how was the response? Oh, it was love because, cause, cause that's what they were, because what they would communicate was our time together gave them an opportunity to step outside of the facility. That, that when we were talking, they knew I wasn't talking to an inmate. I was talking to the man and, and, and there was, and I honored them. I respected them. And I ventured to learn them enough to be able to begin to love them. Mm. And that's what made the difference. And so when people are like, oh, what makes the difference? You know, what, 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 what gives you the advantage and your ability to present and all that? No, no, no. My main focus is to begin to first yield a certain level of respect and honor. Mm. And, and I release love. My desire is for you to feel loved, welcomed, accepted, because, because now, because I have to be able to speak to the heart of individuals and win that level of trust. Because the moment that you give me permission to be able to connect to your heart, you're going to give me permission now to gain access to your mind and to be able to share information that you're going to grab a hold of. But individuals try to, and, and when, it, when we talk about education, they're, they're trying to come cut communicate and connect directly to the mind of individuals and to download information into their minds and hoping that individuals can perform according to the information that they've downloaded into a person's mind. That's not how education works. There has to be a level of trust that's communicated and, 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 and established so that an individual can now let down all of their guards to be open to the fact that you're a person of, of credibility um, and what you have to share is really in their best interest because you've taken enough interest in them to discover what that even is. Yeah. And you're shooting from there. And, you're, and, and your whole objective is to add, add value. Yeah. And when they know that that's really what's at your guts, they're open. Yeah. And, and once we establish that premise, I could be in there talking about anything. Now, mind you, um, that's a sensitive space because you can either leverage that for good or manipulate that for evil. Mm. That's something that my life in New Brunswick taught me. Mm. I learned how to establish a certain level of relationship and engagement to where I now have won your trust and I can take you in any direction I want to take you in. And a lot of my younger life was me exploiting that and manipulating that for my own evil gain. Mm. But it took my, my spiritual metamorphosis to allow me to realize that God gave me that ability to be able to lead people into what's right. Mm. 
And, and Bishop Younger has always taught us that effective leadership is sometimes um, um, convincing people to do things that they typically wouldn't do that are actually in their own best interest. Mm -hmm. So when they end up in this place, it's like, wow, I never would have led myself here, but I'm so glad that I am here. Mm -hmm. And that that's essentially our responsibility. And so um, I'm grateful that I get opportunities to be able to do this. And it started off in the jails and, and, um, and, and it was that very, uh, that very approach and philosophy that I've saw um, that made me uh, effective in the juvenile detention centers. And I take that very same thing now that I get opportunities to be on platforms with superintendents and principals. I come with the very same steam. You know, I, 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 I play with my registers of language you know, um, but the approach is very, very similar. And that's and that's what allows me to to stand out and um, and, and kind of be a little more effective. Yeah, it's it seems to me that you walk around with the, the belief that no one is too far gone, <sighs> that, that you're not right. You haven't written anyone. Is that true? <laughs> I, I, I think the more and more we we acknowledge our need for grace, um, we realize that now we have a responsibility to extend that same measure of grace. Yeah. And I live according to that because I'm a very imperfect person, regardless of how some people may. Because because uh, I was talking to one of my mentees last night. He's like, yeah, man, it just seemed like you just got it all together. I'm like, listen, if that that's nothing but the grace of God, because can I tell you something? I am, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm significantly flawed. Yeah. I could bring my fiance, uh, Crystal Nose, into it, and she can, she can go into the complexities of my offness, right. you know. But she yet extends grace to me. God extends grace to me, and so my responsibility on this earth is to extend grace to people that really want to get things right. And I think that's determinant. That's the determining factor that I'm always looking for. Yeah. Is this someone that actually wants to get it right? Yeah. And could this be that this person is more frustrated with themselves because they haven't gotten it right yeah. than anybody else could ever be with them? And so for that reason, I have to give this individual extra grace. Yeah. And I also have to give this person time and impart something into them to bring their minds back to the space to where they could begin to fathom the idea that they deserve another chance. Mm. That's who I am. Mm. That's my space. Mm. Because I know how fragile the internal human condition is and how it only takes one, one tragic mistake mm. to be made to make someone internally feel like they don't deserve anything good to happen for them because they can justify that notion due to what they've mishandled. Yeah. And so my job is to find that space in someone and talk them out of it and allow them to be able to see that they deserve, they deserve the opportunity. They deserve to give themselves another chance. Mm. Because a lot of times when people look at individuals coming out of jail, they're like, yeah, second chance program. Yeah, we need to give them a second chance before they can begin to open their minds up to, 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 to request a second chance from you. Mm -hmm. 
they first have to deal with the warfare of giving themselves permission mm. to engage another chance, mm. to actually believe that they even deserve another chance before they could even make a request for another shot. That's the warfare, that internal warfare. But in my time dealing with those prisoners, I begin to realize that we're all captive. We're, we're all living in our own cell, whatever that looks like. And no, we're out here, we're, we're being successful, we're making money, we're closing deals, we're, we're growing infrastructure, but internally captive. Never enough money, never enough love, never enough support, never enough, you know, we, I don't know, we, we, we say, I don't know how so-and-so would, would take their own life, man. They had this, they had that, they had this, they had that, but they were captive within themselves and didn't feel like they deserved anything. Mm. And unfortunately, we don't talk to the conditions of people. We examine behavior which is a byproduct. Mm -hmm. You know, we, 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 we analyze symptoms, but we never deal with trauma yeah. and how people are internally being impacted by that. Because mm -hmm. it's a knot. It's a knot. It's, it's a really abstract knot. You know, you, you know when kids are, are first learning how to tie their shoes? Yeah. And you're spending more time in trying to detain, trying to figure out how in the world did you do this? But, but, but the focus is we have to detangle this so we can begin the process of doing it right. Mm -hmm. But so often the way we handle issues is, you know what? You made a mess. Let me get some scissors. Pop, 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 pop. Cut them all out. Here's a new lace. Let's thread it all up and start you all over again. But that doesn't change the issue because once I leave you alone with those new laces, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna tie another weird knot. Right. And it's not until we stop and say, hold up, stop. Let's untangle. I need you to see that I'm taking time in detangling this knot that you made, and I'm not gonna make you feel bad about it, but we're gonna work through it. I'm putting this time into these laces to show you how important these laces are. Yeah. And all. Now let's focus on taking these laces and now tying them up the right way and see that these laces, which were once a headache, can actually be a good thing. Mm. And you can actually utilize them to, 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 to be able to reach a specific ob objective. Mm -hmm. Now, there's nothing wrong with these laces. They can be tied into an effective bow and double knotted and they can be easily detangled. I just got to spend this time with you to show you how. And unfortunately, we're not we're not spending time with individuals to show them how to detangle their knots and how to tie and how to tie an effective bow. So one of the challenges I see, if I was in your shoes, because I'm thinking right now, I want Walter in every room in Lynchburg that needs it. Any room hmm. where somebody needs trajectory change, hmm. right? Somebody to show them something different. Uh, give them an example of it could be a different. Make a spark, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would see the challenge for you right now is how do you decide which rooms? You, you're only one guy. You've got a fiance. You've got other responsibilities. Yeah. Do you feel the weight of deciding where to use and deploy these gifts? Yeah. I mean, um, first of all, I'm, I'm 
grateful man. Mm. Um, I thought I screwed my life up. Yeah. Um, before I came to Lynchburg, um, I I had to drop out of college. You know, um, I was on track to um, be maybe like some politician or mm. some type of uh, television personality or something. Um, and um, I misappropriated my time and and money in school, and I just couldn't afford to finish the race, man. And I felt like a failure. I was in denial. I was living in my car for about eight months. Um, winters are a rough time to be homeless. Mm. Rough time to be homeless. So to anybody out there, it's getting cold outside. Mind you, there's people that are outside sleeping and it's a real hard time to be homeless. So be a, be a special blessing to anybody you see that may be out there homeless. Mm. Um, and and uh, and and so for me to be at that low place, I came to Lynchburg because I knew there was something spiritual for me to figure something out. But it was mainly because I couldn't face the humiliation of going back to New Brunswick, New Jersey as a failure. Mm. I couldn't pull myself to do it. There was so many expectations. My my story is not that, you know, growing up nobody believed in me, nobody invested in me. That is the polar opposite end. Growing up, I've had nothing but support. I had nothing but people having great expectations of my life and what they expected. And, you know, and and my my pressures and anxieties were connected to living up to expectations that were great. Hmm. And a lot of times people don't talk about that, but but I I live to you that that's probably a greater burden, yeah. and so me feeling like I, I screwed it all up to now be in a space to where I'm being requested, yeah. it it blows my mind, hmm. and so naturally for me, my challenge is I'll literally try to make room to be in any room that it requests me, yeah. but I'm I'm blessed to have advisors. You know, um, and and staff to say that's not possible. No, we got to pull back. Uh, uh-uh, no, no, no. You know, uh, I know you, you, you. I'd I'd be in every single room I possibly can for free. But I have people in my life now and attorneys that are like, no, that's not possible because now what you have and what you're doing um, is connected to something much bigger. You know, now the decisions that I'm making are impacting the livelihood of other people. And so, um, yeah, now, um, uh, of course, from a business standpoint, there's certain um, rooms and opportunities that are um, that make sense. Um, but yet there's still other rooms that can't necessarily tangibly afford um, my time. But there's something in my spirit that that confirms like I need to be there. Yeah. You know, um, so 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 there are specific organizations that I have pro bono agreements with that ensure there's a certain level of consistency that I can spend with their with their people. Um, but but annually we only really pick two. And so that's 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 that that's been the way in which the people around me have kind of been able to kind of gear me in and kind of reeling it in because of my desire to really want to be everywhere because I'm fascinated by people's stories. Mm. And it gives me an opportunity yeah to share what's on me but to learn what's in them.
And so um, I, I love it. And I, if if I have my way, I'll, I'll be spending time with people for the rest of my life, sharing, bringing perspective, learning to really refine my perspective and also broaden it at the same time. Yeah. So moving towards Lynchburg in general, twenty twenty has been this crazy wild year, right? <laughs> like just crazy on so many levels. Um, is there anything in Lynchburg right now that you've seen over the last, I don't know, 12 months that's got you hopeful, that's got you excited about this city and where it's headed? Um, we're in a time where there's so much divisiveness within the country. Yeah. Um, while at the same time, here in Lynchburg, I've been seeing a much a much bigger move of consciousness um, committed to unity. Um, let's just use um, uh, two specific case studies. Uh, the moment that the speculation of the lockdown, the initial one at the, at the, at the beginning of COVID, you know, locking down of, of, of businesses, which businesses can be open, what that looks like, restaurants, what that would look like. You know, um, it was it, it, it was a lot because because at that time I'm, I'm, I'm running I'm running a staffing firm here in the city. Special shout out Extra Solutions Staffing. Um, you know, we we doing manufacturing stuff, doing stuff with the city da, 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 da. and that business model was significantly revolutionized because because operations are shutting down and wondering if they're even going to be open. But we make our livelihood off of staffing people and creating opportunities for people. And so since that shut down now, we have a significant amount of people that are trying to figure out, OK, what, what, what am I going to be able to do? You know, are there some other opportunities that are open that we can fall into it? And dealing with that while at the same time realizing that the bottom line of our actual company is being hit and figuring out, like, what in the world am I going to do? What in the world? You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I was like, I need to go for a bike ride. <laughs> you know, I'm about to, you know, I'm, I'm about to make my way down Commerce Street, make a right down ninth. I'm going to jump onto the you know, Blackwater Creek Trail over by the skate park and just ride. I'm coming down Knife Street. I hear my name, you know, and, 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 and I see it's, 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 it's a buddy of mine, um, Mike Barron, who's, who's, who's the GM over at White Heart. Um, and I'm, I'm waving at him as I'm passing him to make that left. And he says, hey, well, when you get a chance, I need to run something by you. And I'm like, that rolling through my mind was not going to uh, allow me to decompress the way that I was looking to. So I had to right there in the intersection of amazement square. And I turned back around. I says, I'm about to go for a ride and I can't ride with not knowing what's behind what you want. He was like, ah, he was thrown off guard. He was like, well, um, we realize our kitchens are going to be down. We're not going to be able to make any revenue, but we want to organize a community kitchen. I was like, what is a community kitchen? He was like, this is where, um, uh, existing restaurants kind of yield their kitchens to make meals for the city or for their for a specific neighborhood, you know, to donate them. Um, he was like, you know, we realized that Lynchburg City Schools are doing breakfast and lunch. You know, we we were thinking about doing dinners, but, you know, don't know how we can go about that here in the city. But we know that you're really connected here and you can help us. 
And I was like, all right, I'm in. Still trying to figure out all this other stuff that's going on that I respond, but I, but I knew, but there was something in me that was like, this is real, you know, like we, we, we need to feed as many people as possible because nobody knows where the money's coming from. Okay, I was like, cool, um, let's, let's lock in, I'm gonna give you a buzz. Went on my bike ride, I started to get, the wheels started turning as to what was gonna go on with this project. We got together essentially within 72 hours, we established the Lynchburg Community Kitchen, um, which uh, we, we had a website up. Um, we, we got over, uh, we, we got four restaurants to commit their, their kitchens to kick out meals. We got over 40 volunteers. We got over um, um, $11,000 worth of food donations, over $7,000 worth of cash donations. We were able to feed um, um, well over, um, well over 10,000 people. Um, within those eight weeks of 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 like COVID's peak lockdown season, right. door to door, um, over about four thousand volunteer hours. You know, um, and in that within itself, I was able to see churches come together, mm. businesses come together, citizens come together to be able to express love to people that were in need and it begun to unify us. Mm. And then shortly after, everything transpired with George Floyd. Yeah. And instantaneously, um, there was a connection that I was able to, to, to make between um, my spiritual father, Bishop Younger, and a pastor that I was getting to know in the city that I thought was taking a really interesting approach towards um, of the church's responsibility to act to social injustice, which is Pastor John Dupin from Waymaker Church. And I just knew they would instantly become friends. Hmm. And so they did. And their response to the George Floyd thing was, we need to bring the people together to pray. Yeah. And so the first Lynchburg Praise event we had um, on the Monument Terrace stairs, which was literally a day after the um, the Federal Street um uh, protests and everything that broke out over there yeah. and the the news station said dozens <laughs> it was more like hundreds I think we got a count of over about like 850 people that were there yeah. and um, it was a powerful moment and and the majority of the individuals that that congregated were our white brothers and sisters mm. you know that were standing because they desired unity. They desired oneness. Mm. And that, that, that had, that projected, that actually projected across the country. The, the, the videos that we had um, pushed out on social media um, went well over 4.5 million. Mm -hmm. um, we've had, we had different, um, different cities throughout the country, you know, reach out for consultation as to how they could emulate the very same thing where they were. And countless prayer rallies um, launched as a result of what we decided to do here in Lynchburg. Yeah. Then we had a follow-up Lynchburg praise down at the Riverfront Park. Yeah. And, um, and over about 3,500 were there. But of course, when the news covered, they said hundreds gathered. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's been a culmination of different things that I've been blessed to be a part of. Yeah. 
um, that reinforce the notion of individuals here in the city coming together and um, and and committed to uh, to actually um, growing this city into into the right side of history. So we started off talking about how Dr. Cardwell <laughs> shouted you out on his episode. So I want to give you a chance to do the same thing. So I'll ask you the same question I asked him. Okay. Which was, is there anyone in our city that you have been encouraged by, impressed with, blessed by, that you're grateful for, that doesn't know it? That maybe doesn't realize the extent, like they've had an impact on you? Mm. Wow. Um, I'm really impressed with a young man. Um, this is a younger brother. His name is Jalen Randolph, aka Jiggy. Um, he is. He's. Um, he's a rapper. Uh, he's a producer. And he has found a way to leverage his gift to um, bring value to the local education community. Um, very brilliant. I'm not even sure that he is fully aware of the power that's connected to his gift and the arena that he is, has the potential to break out into and the, and the reverberation of 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 how his example can begin to ignite artists to open up to the idea of leveraging their gifts to add value to public education. Um, uh, Nick George, mm. um, president, founder, CEO of The Listening. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, um, especially because he's from New Jersey as well. You know what oh. I'm saying? But absolutely brilliant in how he's been able to cultivate community amongst creatives, and and his ability to um, bring the focus of of those members of his community in on specific subject matters and keeping them focused on that subject matter while yet at the same time releasing their creativity to express whatever is in them to to yield their own interpretation of those subject matters brilliant 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 there's so much more ahead of him i believe in 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 creating spaces for for creatives, um, because because what we as as America have historically been, and I've been concerned because we've been devolving from it, is we've been at the forefront of innovation. We've been the world's innovators, mm. and within the past twenty to thirty years, we've gotten comfortable, and we've relinquished the the responsibility for innovation. And so I, I'm, I'm excited about creatives 
um, stepping outside of their own microcosms and into the mainstream and yielding their gifts to bring innovative ideas and ways in which to get things done. And so um, Nick George is somebody that uh, um, I'm, I'm blessed to be considered a mentor of sorts, um, but I don't perceive it that way. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful to consider him a friend and someone that's growing and developing in the city at the same time. So we're getting near the end of our time, right? And yeah. this, this, this makes me sad, man, because I feel like you've been digging into so many different areas that, that really have gone untouched. And so this has kind of almost felt like, you know, um, I, I feel like I'm supposed to pay like a Kofi or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll bill you. We'll, you. You get our invoice. Um, so you mentioned your approach to your jail ministry, mm-hmm. uh, your work there. And I thought it was really creative and in a way that could resonate with someone. Mm-hmm. I'm that kid, your son, your nephew, yeah. your grandson. Yeah. You need to show up for me. And that's yeah. a way to pull on the heartstrings and get through some junk and get right to it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and the part of me that is fascinated by stories wants to know if you got that outcome yourself. Because you told us about your, your dad that he had... Mm-hmm. He had been in jail, but mm-hmm. we never resolved. That's an open loop yeah, in my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you, when you went to do ministry, that was the role you took on. But yeah. I, what's nagging yeah. at me is, did that loop get yeah. closed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For you, yeah. The the beautiful part about that is, and yeah, Billy, you're really genius, man. Um, is is that um, when uh, when I was when I was 17, my dad got locked up for the last time. Um, when I fell into a really, when, when I, when I, when I, uh, I got, I got kicked out of, well, I didn't, I, I got kicked out of the state of Virginia, um, my freshman year. I actually caught a charge with the Virginia state troopers. It's a long story. I was facing a year of jail time. Um, I got in a high speed chase with them. I got away and they caught up with me about two weeks later and I had an opportunity to be able to turn myself in, which I did facing a year of jail time, suspended it. And gave me like seven thousand bucks. I had to pay back in fines, reduced um, a felony hit and run down to a misdemeanor um, reckless driving. Um, I had to go back to New Jersey. This is my this this is the first semester of my freshman year at high school, and I come back to New Jersey at the very same time my dad is being released from prison, mm. and we moved in together. And for the first time in my life since I was about seven years old, I'm I'm engaging my father and he's sober and in his right mind. And I had an opportunity to meet him. And not just meet him, but live with him. And had a chance to be able to see that he was committed to living life clean while he was incarcerated he um he kicked his heroin addiction mm. he rededicated his life to the lord mm. and was beginning the process of learning who he was going to be now mm. 
and we were both in this place of needing restoration and we both essentially like rededicated our lives together and started going to church together and um it was crazy because it's like we kind of begun to grow as like brothers because yeah. we were in a very similar space really trying to figure out like what are we going to do with our lives what's what's going to come of all this kind of like starting from scratch type and just being there to encourage each other and and it was it was to say significantly um um imperative to a certain level of healing would be an understatement um i had a chance to do some healing and and because i finally was able to talk to the dad that i always wanted and being able to trust him with with being able to talk me through some of the challenges i was dealing with cuz i could trust his judgment and the blessed thing is now I can say that I've been able at the age of 35 that I've been able to have my dad in my life sober more years than I had him in my life under the influence of drugs where I couldn't trust his judgment. Mm. And so that's what I share with people like, yeah, no. How old is your kid? Yeah, my kid's eight. How long have you been screwing up? I've been screwing up his his whole life. I said, I need you to understand something that you can start over and there will come a day where your kid will say, I have now had my dad in my life more years in a healthy way than the years that I've experienced him being off. Mm. But you got to be committed to press and play on that thread mm. and beginning that that reputation, that journey. To where the years, the years of positive impact you make in your life can outweigh the years of toxic mess that you put your kids through. And you can work yourself into a better scenario. And so that's that's the end of that loop. And that's a part of that. That's good. So the the cathartic healing moment that you are sort of presenting as this is a possible way forward for those in jail or anyone who's struggling who's low you got it you got it at 21 age 20 yeah about like 19 19 20 yeah do you think i know you've tried to as we all have but you said in your story that you've tried different ways to fill yourself up to mm. feel to 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 go to a high level, right? Whether that's drugs, that's alcohol, yeah, sports, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think for you now that transformation Woo! is the thing you're addicted that's to? That's it. There's, there, there's nothing that compares to observing someone in the midst of their dilemma. Mm. Um, clicking into their journey yeah. and walking, walking them through what's unbearable, mm. um, what's impossible, and seeing them come into a place where they're now above it, mm. where they're through it. Mm. And for them to have gotten a revelation of their durability and their versatility 
because they survived something mm. that they thought was going to take them out or overwhelm them. Mm. I'm going to be doing this type. I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Yeah. This I've come to realize that's who I am. Well, I, I think I'm really glad that you're here in Lynchburg and that you're this calling for transformation, mm. Mm. bringing it about, mm. making it happen, mm. that you're working it here. Mm. And I'm excited to just see what happens. Mm. And at the end of most episodes, if someone has talked about their faith, mm-hmm. I always ask if they will say a prayer of blessing mm. for our city. Wow. Uh, wow. You willing, willing to do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, let's, let's pray. Um, uh, Father God, in Jesus' name, um, before we ask you for anything, Lord, first we just want to thank you for everything, um, for how you've been preserving us in a unique way during this time where um, sometimes we don't know which way is up, which way is down, which way is left, and which way is right, but you know, you remain constant through it all. You allow us to be able to see you, and thus we can determine which way is north. God, I praise you and I thank you that you've been doing something in the hearts of people, especially the people here in this city, Lord. You've been speaking to us, um, even if we're uh, mindful of it or not, Lord. But I thank you that you've been blessing us with divine leaders here in the city, Lord. Um, You've been blessing us with divine seers and people that have an ear to hear what you're saying to us and that you've been allowing individuals to emerge so that they can be easily found, Lord. And I thank you that you've been pulling on people's hearts to do what so many have been talking about but neglecting, Lord. You've been calling people to collaborate. And so, Father God, I praise you and I thank you, Lord, that you're releasing revival here in this city that causes the hearts of fathers to turn to sons, Mm -hmm. causing the hearts of of those who have felt uh, marginalized and those that have been blessed to have much to find each other. God, I praise you and I thank you right now because you're allowing uh, those that are responsible for resources to really look for the opportunities to connect with those that need. God, I praise you and I thank you for every bridge builder in this city right now. In the name of Jesus, Lord, and I praise you and I thank you that you're standing them up and recognizing that they have a responsibility of being catalysts to unity, Lord. I praise you and I thank you, Lord, that you're seeing to it that needs are being met, Lord, that 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 brokenness is being mended. But right now, the prayer that I pray is that you can begin to exalt every valley, bring every high place down low, every crooked way to be made straight, to give your people easy access into the things that you have for them. And so, God, I praise you and I thank you for Billy, Lord, and what he's doing with this platform giving us an opportunity to hear the, the, the stories and to hear the insight from those that you've been calling to this city to lead, Lord. Father God, I praise you and I thank you that there's revival that's stirring up here that the rest of the world will be able to look upon and live. God, I thank you because you know what you're doing, even though sometimes we may not. And so for that reason, our declaration this morning, but not just for this morning, but continually to come out of our mouths is that, Lord, we trust you. Mm. We trust you. You know us. You know the circumstances. You know the way out for you to declare to us that you are the way. <laughs> mm. You are the truth. You are the life. 
And Lord, we follow you in this season, knowing that you're leading us into your destined place, into your promised place. And we find contentment in that. Help us to be better. Help us to listen better. Help us to obey quickly when you move on our hearts. We love you. We appreciate you. We thank you for your covering and your love, your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, man. Thank you for being here. Bro, thank you for having me here, man. <laughs> this is awesome. So, so grateful for Walter for sitting down with me and sharing his story. And if you haven't met him and you're in Lynchburg, find a way to get in the room with him. Um, he's somebody that loves to meet people and connect. And I know you will leave your time with him feeling more hopeful, just like I have today. See you next time.